am obliged to you for giving me permission to attend the French and Spanish classes. I have not yet asked your brothers, as I do not intend to go till the beginning of December. Trusting that you will pardon my thoughtlessness in throwing away my money and begging to be remembered to Mrs. Taylor and all the family. I am, my dear father, yours affectionately, John Taylor. Like, something you have to remember about these letters is that the people that I'm reading, they seem so adult and so old-fashioned because it's 1805, but they're like 18. And so, in a way, this just feels very modern and very much so like, Dad, can I have some more money? Hi, I'm Robbie Griswold, and you're listening to the RC Podcast. What you just heard was RC alum Maria Lo Cicero reading from her Honors History Project. Maria graduated last spring with a double major in history and arts and ideas in the humanities with a focus from a history of race and religion and theater practice. When it came time to do her research for her history thesis, she took a dive into the archives and studied race through the lens of the written correspondence of a mixed race family in the 18th and 19th centuries. Maria said the story of the Taylor family complicates the narrative of simple racism, She weaves together an insightful analysis of race in the colonial period, but what's also unique about her history thesis is that she used her research and her passion for theater to produce a one-act play about the Taylor family. Last year, before she graduated, Maria spoke about her project with me and shared a story that should pique your interest. So Maria, tell us a little bit about the family you've been studying. So basically, this guy named John Taylor was this man from Scotland. He was upper class, um, but he really wanted more money. And so he tried a bunch of failed ventures in America to get some more cash and eventually uh, made his way to Jamaica, where his cousin Simon lived. And his cousin Simon was the richest man on the island to make a fortune. And he did that through the slave trade. And while he was there, he entered into a common law marriage of sorts with this woman named Polly Graham, who was enslaved by his cousin, Simon. And together they had like four children, one of whom might've died young um, because three survive into adulthood. What's the most interesting to me about this story is that John freed his children or or paid for Simon to free his children and Polly and then sent his kids to school in England. And then the kids, there's two sons and a daughter. It's not really clear what happens to the daughter because unfortunately women are fairly silenced in the archive. But one, the elder son became a cadet in the British East India Trading Company, which he was not technically allowed to do. Um, And the other became basically an accountant in London. Their story kind of complicates this idea that I feel is a little prevalent. It's becoming less prevalent now, but the idea that there is a sort of simple racism of the past where you have, you know, slavery and you have all these people doing terrible things. What I found from looking at the letters is it's way more complicated than we tend to think about it. And issues of race and class and family intersect at so many different points. I mean, obviously, theater is one huge component of this. But what else from any uh, any other of the threads of the arts India's major coursework led to the development of this thesis with the history department? I found out about these letters in this archive while I was doing a history class on African-American history from like 1620 to the Civil War. Um, And that counted for both my history degree and my arts and ideas degree. And that's kind of where I stumbled across 
these documents with help from the Clements Library librarians. I was just fascinated by the story and the people in these letters. And my junior year, after I had taken a couple of drama courses through the RC and then COVID shut down a lot of the archives. And so I was like, I don't know if I can do enough research to write a full history thesis. And then I thought, well, I love theater. I've been doing theater since I was six years old. And what originally drew me to these letters was kind of just the characters. And so kind of just thinking back on my drama courses through the RC, I was like, that could be a really interesting way to A, up my, you know, page numbers. um, And also do something that I hadn't thought that I would be able to do. I, I, I've never written a play in my life, but I thought it would be a cool way to sort of combine my interests. And luckily, everyone in the history department um, thought that it was a fun idea. Maria proceeded to share some excerpts from a draft of her essay. The central characters she discusses in this excerpt include the father of the family, John Taylor, Polly Graham, an enslaved woman who John paid to be freed, and their four mixed-race children named James, Catherine, Simon, and John Taylor. When John Taylor arrived in Kingston, Jamaica in 1783, he was coming off of a long spell of bad luck. Born to an affluent Scottish family near Montrose, John had spent much of his young adult life attempting to earn more wealth. John was by no means alone in his dream to go to Jamaica and make a fortune. Many white people came to the island with the hopes of gaining immense wealth and one day becoming affluent absentee plantation owners. However, the majority of people never achieved that goal. Uh, While working as a town factor, which to use John's language was almost wholly a commission business, which involved selling rum and sugar and supplying the plantations with different articles they want, such as lumber and flour, etc. John was acutely aware that there was a greater amount of money to be made as a guinea factor. A guinea factor was similar to a town factor, only it involved the sale of human cargo. As a guinea factor, John could earn large commissions on few ships by organizing the sale of captive Africans who were taken to Jamaica. This venture proved to be extremely lucrative for Taylor, as over the course of his 12-year career in the slave trade, he was responsible for the selling of 17,295 Africans and accounted for 11% of Jamaica's slave trade. The money John made off of the sale of human beings would in part go to support his own mixed-race children. John Taylor's own relationship with Polly is an example of how contradictory attitudes and actions towards race could be at this time. According to his own letters, John cared for Polly. He wrote in 1790 to his cousin Simon in in an effort to obtain freedom for her and their children. In the letter, he said, having now for several years experienced her care and attention, both while I have been in sickness and health, I confess myself much attached to her. I feel myself more anxious to obtain this favor, meaning their freedom, than I can describe. He paid to have her and the children freed, provided Polly with a house, her own slaves, and an allowance after he returned to Europe, and consistently supported his mixed race children into their young adulthoods. At the same time, he was intimately involved with slavery and supported the slave trade wholeheartedly. His familial relationships with Polly and their children did not interfere with his support of the slave trade as a whole. The day after he requested that Simon free his family, John began the sale of 360 Africans who had been brought to Jamaica. John viewed slavery and the slave trade as tickets to his success. He did not interpret the system as a question of morality, but rather as practical economics. So tell us a little bit about the process of actually working with the primary sources and material for the project. Have any challenges come up in reading the family's correspondence? The time period that I'm working with mainly is about 1760 to 1815. And so 
that's like over 200 years ago. And so the fact that these letters have even survived at all is like incredible. But there's stuff to do with like the physical letters themselves. Like some of them are tearing and there are like holes in places so you can't read all the words because the paper is missing or like it's hard with COVID because basically everything that I've read has had to be scanned because I haven't been able to get into the Clements very often. And so sometimes when it's scanned, if the paper is thin, then you have different layers and you're trying to read it. But the worst thing is cross-hatching. And let me tell you, cross-hatching is terrible and I hate that they did it. So basically, back in the day, paper was so expensive. And so they really wanted to kind of make the most of it. And so sometimes what these people did is they would write a letter and they would write it normally, horizontally, left to right. And then they would flip their paper and then write, continue writing. And sometimes they would even flip their paper diagonally and continue writing, meaning that you have two or three layers of handwriting on top of each other for the same letter. And luckily, most of my letters that I'm working with are not like that, but there was a big long one from James where the first like three pages are cross-hatched beyond belief. And that was so bad. Actually, I ended up getting help from the librarian at the Clements with that one. It was just so much. What you're about to hear is a letter from John Taylor's brother, Robert, writing to John about enrolling his son James in school. This letter illustrates the complex attitudes around race and family that form the premise of Maria's thesis. So Robert wrote to John and he said, I approve very much of your sentiments respecting your little family and agree entirely with you as to the plan of education and the matter you propose to bring them up in. It is surely incumbent on us to provide for our offspring, whether black or white, in a manner the most likely to render their situation in life comfortable to them. And your sentiments on that subject, in my opinion, does you great honor. I certainly think your little boy may be placed at some school in England where he may receive an education suitable to the matter you intend to bring him up in, and where he will in the end be much happier than if he was put under our mother's care at Montrose, who would treat him with the same kindness and attention as if he had been born in wedlock, which you know must mortify him the more as soon as he has sense to know the disadvantages with which, with which he has been ushered into life. And by keeping him at a distance from his own relations, I think there is the greatest chance of concealing from him his inferiority and preventing the mortification of being slighted by relations who from early habits he might consider himself perfectly upon a footing with. I will with the greatest pleasure look out for a proper school for him and give you every assistance in my power to bring him up in the manner you propose, which I do assure you I think is the most likely to promote his happiness. So (laughs) it's like a weird thing where Robert is not necessarily as concerned about James's race um, as we might assume he would be. It's more about illegitimacy, but also it's sort of revealed in this quote that like he, Robert needs him, needs James to be boxed in and not to ever want to rise above sort of the station in life that Robert thinks he should be placed in. And so the education will be to a T what his father and what his uncle kind of like want him to do. Robert, I think, over, like over the course of the letters, he's talk, he talks about this enough, 
it seems as though he is actually genuine and genuinely concerned about James's happiness. But to him, to Robert, happiness can only come from being in the station that you are assigned. So tell us more about how you've been adapting the history of this family into a play. At the moment, my conception of it is kind of a story of these people who were outsiders and then brought and became insiders. And it's very clear from other letters that like James especially adopts a very British colonist like perspective. Like he thinks of himself as a white British gentleman. He came from Jamaica to Scotland when he was about four years old. And then he gets placed in this boarding school. And then when he is 18, 19, he joins the British East India Trading Company. And his family supports him both in like helping him get the job and also like monetarily. But then we flash forward to kind of like 1811, about six years after he joins the British East India Company. And communication with his father, who is getting increasingly sicker, stops. And at the end of John Sr.'s life, he gives all of his money and property and things to his eldest white son, Robert, completely cutting James and John and Catherine, his mixed-race children, out of his will completely. Um, And since he dies in 1815 and the letters stop in 1811, it feels like they're again being ostracized from the family that supported them and so but was always on the fence about supporting them in a way like to get back to the play what I kind of want to explore there is this transformation that occurs for these young people where they go from outsiders who are exploited to kind of insiders who exploit um, and then once again kind of get pushed back to an outsider status um, solely based on on their race and family situation. I'm very well aware of this is a sensitive topic in a number of ways. Like not only is this like a real family with like real descendants today, but also issues of race and family are not confined to the past. They are very real today. And, and I am not in a position where I feel comfortable telling this story that I like make up myself because my, you know, personal background is not the same as these people that I'm writing about. And so I want to be careful and treat it with the respect that it deserves. And so for that reason, among others, most of the one I play is going to be based on things that were actually said in these letters, which I think A, will like give it a good structure and lend it legitimacy, but also makes me feel more comfortable that I'm trying to take a step back and not put too much of myself in there because I don't know what it's like. I don't want to ever be in a position where there's too much of me and like not enough of the actual story, you know? Maria and I did a cold reading of her initial draft of a scene from her play and excuse my cold reading. In this reading, she plays Polly Graham, and I play John McCall, a man who was John Taylor's friend and later brother-in-law that managed affairs with his estate in Jamaica. In the scene, Mr. McCall urges Polly to send her children across the Atlantic to be educated and raised in England. Tommy was a piper's son and fell in love when he was young, but all the tunes that he could play was o'er the hills and far away. Good morning, Polly. 
Good morning, Mr. McCall. Any news today? No, nothing out of the ordinary. I must say I'm glad we have been favored with such fine weather today. The past few weeks have been murderous. I have not known the town so sickly since I came here. Simon and John have quite recovered from their colds. I'm sure the fresh air did them some good. Have you anything to read to me today? You mean news of James? I'm afraid Mr. Taylor says very little of your boy, but I'm sure the young chap is quite well. I would have heard if anything was not us as usual. Of course. John did write expressing concerns about the estate, however. He wishes me to tell you that I am to attempt in earnest to find a house for you and your children. I know how anxious you have been for one. Thank you, Mr. McCall. He makes note of your allowance and your desire to purchase some little slaves for help around the house. He approves of this wholeheartedly, provided you stay economical with your budget. Nothing extravagant, obviously, but I think one or two would be in order for you. I will keep an eye on the paper for you. Thank you, Mr. McCall. There's also the issue of the children's voyage. John is still so small, I, I don't see how- as old as James was when he crossed. Plus he'll have Simon with him to look out for him. You might, as, you might think of sending little Kate as well. I believe the younger they are sent, the better. Kate, she's just a babe. Bliss, she's only just recovered from smallpox. You have a great many good qualities, Polly. You're frugal, industrious, and obviously caring of your children. I have seen you take every care of them, and I know you will continue to do so. But I must ask you to think for a moment on where your children will have the most assured happiness. Is it here? Well... John has assured me his brother is capable of providing the children with a proper education. They would be looked after and cared for, if that is your concern. I have no doubt that they would, but Kate is so young, and she... Polly, you know these days girls are under no control of their mother. I don't doubt your abilities, but her temperament might yield her impossible to bring up in the way you wish. I would agree with you that she is not old enough to make the journey now, being just a babe, but soon, when she is old enough, order her home. She'll be with her brother, she'll be able to attend school. Don't you want your little girl to be able to read? She's just so young, I, I only wish to. Yes, she is young. That fact has been established. I have offered you a compromise. Of course, it's not my place to speak further on this issue. Just give it some thought, will you? I truly think you'd be doing most right by them. Yes, Mr. McCall. Now, I've told you about the house, the slaves, uh, let's see, the allowance. I'm going to write to Mr. Taylor tomorrow and inform him about issues of the estate, the children and the like. Would you like me to pass on a message from you? No. Uh, simply inquire as to how they're doing and send him and his little boy my, my best wishes, will you? Certainly. Good day, Polly. Good day. Mr. McCall? Yes? Please, please inform him that although I have so often solicited him to allow the daughters to stay with me, I now wish to retract that request. Do you? Yes. As you say, girls these times are in no control of their mother, so therefore I would thank you to request that when Kate is old enough that Mr. Taylor would be so kind as to order her home. She's such a fine child that I think she will do well. You have made a prudent decision, Polly. Thank you.
I'll be sure to inform Mr. Taylor of your wishes in this matter. Now, good day. Good day. It is so great to see how you are incorporating your passion for theater and adapting the letters into a play, especially in such a nuanced and interesting story. What kinds of concerns or issues come up in dramatizing the Taylor's family history? With this one, I was kind of experimenting with kind of taking a quote and then also a couple of other quotes. Um, Some of the details come from other letters that weren't in the quote that I originally read and kind of playing around with it to try to create more of a narrative. At the beginning, I kind of wasn't expecting on doing a lot of dialogue-driven stuff and like have it be kind of a collection of letters still. But I think that I kind of like this vibe of basing a scene on some letters and pulling the language from the letters while also being able to fictionalize a little bit because I have no idea if John McCall actually like put the idea in her head or like why she had the idea but the problem with the archive is that I will never be able to know why she ended up wanting to send all of her children after she said that she didn't because I mean she's not present really in the archive Uh, she has no agency in it and so I kind of wanted to uh, offer an account of what might have been a factor or a reason. Tommy was a piper's son and fell in love when he was young, but all the tunes that he could play was over the hills and far away. And this is where Polly would start to cry. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this conversation. I hope you enjoyed learning a bit about the intersection of race and family in the colonial past of the 18th century, as elucidated in Maria's research. Thanks to Maria La Cicero for appearing on this episode. She's currently working in a 7th and 8th grade science classroom and teaching social-emotional learning with City Year in Chicago. Thanks to RC students Arjun Tucker and Relian DeGraff for co-producing this episode with me. The music on today's episode is Corelli Concerto Grosso D Minor II by the Advent Chamber Orchestra. Subscribe to the RC Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Residential College is a four-year interdisciplinary living learning program in East Quadrangle on the campus of U of M Ann Arbor in the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts. It was founded in 1967, and this past spring marked the 50th anniversary of the graduation of the first class of RCers. Congratulations, everyone. This is your host, Robbie Griswold, signing off. Thank you.